We're going to conclude a summer series on Sundays where we've been looking at antithetical statements in the morning and in the evenings. Opposite themes, paradoxes, you might say. Uh, skeptics of the Bible might call these contradictions. In fact, you can go online. I don't suggest that you do this, but you can go online and Google Bible contradictions and find lists of hundreds of alleged Bible contradictions. Uh, a lot of atheists laugh at us for calling the Bible inspired. You know, the Bible makes that claim. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. And with those statements, the Bible sticks its neck out there and says there are no mistakes, no errors, no contradictions. So what do we do when somebody alleges a Bible contradiction? You may have heard of the 18th century thinker Thomas Paine. He arrogantly concluded in his book, The Age of Reason, I've now gone through the Bible as a man would go through a wood with an axe on his shoulder and felled trees. Here they lie. And the priests, if they can, may replant them. They may come up, perhaps stick them in the ground, but they will never make them grow. The axe that he is talking about is probably some of the contradictions that he thought that he found in the pages of Scripture. Many others have made bold claims like Thomas Paine. Back in his day, he was not respected for comments like this, but today he is heralded as a free thinker, as a man of the Enlightenment, a man of reason. Is it reasonable to look at paradoxes in the Bible and call them contradictions that challenge the inspiration of the Bible? Well, it's not. There, in truth, there's no provable contradictions at all in the Bible. Now, there are differences in details, uh, Matthew might share with us an episode of Christ's ministry that's not included in Mark. John might do the same with regard to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That doesn't mean they're contradicting one another. Uh, to the contrary, it means they worked independently of one another and produced a harmonious account. You don't have to prove that all the details match exactly. You just have to prove they don't contradict one another. Differences in detail are not the same thing as contradictions. If you can come up with just one possible explanation, it doesn't have to be the explanation. We may not know why a difference is there. But if you can come up with one possible explanation that harmonizes, reconciles the two passages, then the, biblical, the, the claim of biblical inerrancy is intact. And I think we've been showing throughout the summer, in the mornings and evenings on Sundays, that context makes a big difference. When you look at the context, these statements that seem so far apart uh, overlap and make a lot of sense. We're going to conclude the series this morning, speaking this morning about wait and tonight about the command to go. This morning, wait, tonight, the command to go. This is important because both are hard. It's very difficult to wait. You're, in, you're on the interstate, but the traffic's not moving. 
You made an appointment with your doctor, but you've been waiting for an hour. You're at a fast food restaurant. I mean, it's called fast food, but the service is slow. You go to the drive-thru window, they say, uh, yeah, can you pull up a little bit? You know what that means? You're going to have to wait. And then Christ invites us to this abundant life. He promises joy. He promises peace. And then we suffer. And we wonder, why do we have to wait? What good is waiting? And how do we do it? Peter gives us a six-step formula in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to that passage as we go through it and explore this formula for waiting. Noticing in the first place, humility. Humility is a key ingredient to waiting. Let me ask you this question. If you had your way, would your life be different? Now, don't be all noble-minded and say, no, I wouldn't change a thing. I've heard people say that. If, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd never change a single thing. Really? Not, not one little thing? Are you sure about that? I mean, all of us have regrets. All of us would like a time machine to go back and change something because we think that life today would be better if we had lived it differently in the past. But if you had your way, your life would be different. But not in the way that you think. The truth is, if you had your way, you'd probably ruin your life. Life's too complicated for any of us to manage. We're too ignorant. We're finite human beings. We can't play God, not even over our own lives. I go back to this statement by Henry David Thoreau many times when I see people prognosticate things and predict things and then they, they never come to pass the way they are predicted when I hear about statements that were made just 20 years ago that seem so absurd today, I think about what Thoreau said. Now, we know only a few laws, and our result is vitiated. That means made ineffective or corrupted. Not, of course, by any confusion or irregularity in nature. It's not the science. But by our ignorance of essential elements in the calculation. The laws of the land, as we, so, as we say, the laws of nature, they never fail. And it's not God who fails. We just fail to know all the elements in the calculation. Life is too complicated for us to take total control. We can't play God, not even over our own lives. You want to look smart 10 years from now? Don't be overly certain about anything. Because anybody who says they know exactly what's going on today will look like a fool tomorrow. And we know that to be true. Life's just too complicated. So we need humility. And in the text, Peter gives at least four incentives for humility. I want you to look at this and... Verse 5, first, first uh, incentive, God opposes the proud. 
Who would be a worse enemy than God? If you're proud and you don't humble yourself, you are competing with God. He is opposed to you. Number two, still verse five. Second incentive, God gives grace to the humble. Grace is undeserved favor. Who couldn't use more of that? James says he gives more grace. We talk about grace mostly in connection with our conversion. God forgives our sins. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve Jesus' death on the cross. But there's more grace than that. The fact that you're sitting in the pew today, breathing and worshiping God, is by grace. You don't deserve that. He gives more grace. Third incentive for humility. God will use His mighty hand to exalt the humble. Verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then final incentive. God will care for the humble. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You can afford to be humble. Humility means... Being willing to accept less than you deserve. You don't always have to get your rights. Life isn't always fair. never is. And you can afford to do that. In fact, there are four good reasons right before us to be humble. You'll notice in here a similarity to what Jesus taught and embodied in his life. Over and over again, he told us, God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. For example, John 12, 25, whoever, loses his whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, the last will be first, and the first will be last. I told a parable in Luke 14 about a man who went to a banquet and sought out the most honorable seat in the banquet. And his statement's not unlike Peter's at the end of that parable. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said the same thing to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. And on the evening of his arrest, the night before he was crucified, when all the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, what did our Lord do? picked up a towel, a basin of water, and one by one he started washing their feet. We need humility as we wait. The fact that you're waiting means you don't have all the answers. Waiting's a great opportunity to listen in humility, so listen and wait on God. Number two, second step in this formula for waiting is patience. You'll notice Peter's frequent references to time in this text. Uh, verse 6, at the proper time. And also in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while. He says something similar to, to that in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, a little while. Paul talks about waiting a little while. Momentary affliction in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. All of this talk about time is, is about patience. He's encouraging patience. And although he doesn't use the word wait here, we see this in Romans 8, 25. 
where Paul says we wait with patience. Patience is hard to describe. I think we all know what it is, but if you try to put it into words, it's difficult. That's why the Bible uses imagery to describe patience. The very words that are used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are actually pictures of what patience is. Uh, in the Hebrew, for example, one term literally means long of nose. It's translated slow to anger or long-suffering in Proverbs 19, verse 11, for example. Long of nose. Uh, we don't know for sure how that came to refer to patience, but it probably has something to do with taking a deep breath before you act or react. Slowing down the impulse to react with anger, to react rashly. Uh, it's interesting, the Hebrew word for anger means short-nosed which makes me think of somebody who's so mad, they're huffing and puffing and breathing really fast, their heart rate's up, their face is red, quick temper, short nose, patience, long of nose. Similarly, the second Hebrew idiom is long of spirit, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. Uh, it's translated patience in modern translations, but the King James long suffering is really closer to the literal meaning of the, of the word. And also in the New Testament, the wording is very similar. Uh, the Greek word, not used by Paul in Romans 8, but used in other places, means long in the soul. The soul being the seat of all your passions and feelings and attitudes. So you delay your instant response. That's what patience is. And they help us understand why it's required for waiting. Take a breath. Wait on God. Be patient. Number three, trust. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now notice grammatically this is a participial phrase. Casting. It's related to and qualifies the imperatives that preceded. What has he been telling us to do? Don't be proud, be humble. We often pull this passage out of context because it's so memorable and so beautiful. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And in that we get the possibility, we know what is possible, but we don't know how to do it unless we look at the context in which it's written. So I want us to to back up and remember what Peter has been saying in the text, beginning in verse 5. He's telling us, he's commanding us, let go of your pride and humble yourself. It's all about trusting God. The way that you cast your anxieties on Him is you put your trust in Him. You think that's an easy thing to do, but if you're, pr if you're proud and you're arrogant, it's almost impossible. Look at Proverbs 28. 25 in the New American Standard Bible. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. You see how he contrasts um, arrogance with trusting? Tim's been teaching us about Hebrew poetry on Wednesday nights in his class on the Psalms. He talks, talks about parallelism. This is a good example of parallelism. It's called antithetical parallelism. The first line states one position. The second line 
states the opposite. What does an arrogant man do? He stirs up strife. The opposite kind of person is one who trusts in the Lord, and he will prosper. Arrogance and trust are antithetical. Pride cannot trust God because the posture of trust is weak. It's dependent. It says, I don't know everything. I can't do everything. I'm not in control. I need to lean on someone else. And when pride keeps us from trusting God to take care of us, there are only two possibilities. One, we feel a false sense of security based on our imagined power and shrewdness to avert catastrophe, and we eventually run into a disaster. Or two, we realize that we can't guarantee our own security, and so we feel anxious. Those are the only two possibilities when you try to rely on your own strength. But pride is anxious about the future. Anxiety and pride go hand in hand. People don't realize that. They think confidence is how you escape anxiety. No, that's the the fastest way to it. Look at a passage from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 51, 12 and 13. It's very enlightening. God says to anxious Israel that their problem is pride. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker? He's saying, who do you think you are by worrying? Does that sound a little harsh? When we worry and we're anxious, oftentimes we feel like we need a little sympathy, right? And he's saying, who do you think you are being afraid of man? Human beings who are like grass. Just trying to get you to see the connection here between pride and anxiety. Between pride and the failure to trust in God. Pride and trust are opposites. And so casting your cares on God because he cares for you, requires humility. This is all connected together, and you get it from the context. Let's look at number four. The next step that is needed is watchfulness. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. Good question here is, how does the devil seek to devour us? We have a lot of superstitious ideas about the devil these days. A lot of mystical ideas that he's, uh, you know, right over our shoulder whispering things into our ears. Still have the Flip Wilson mentality, the devil made me do it. Uh, We think of demons possessing us. And we forget All the passages of the Bible that say that when Jesus died on the cross, he threw the ruler of this world out. He took him out and he's gone. He destroyed his power, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He triumphed over him in the cross, Colossians 2, 15. The devil doesn't have the kind of power that he had in the days of Job. The devil doesn't have the kind of power that he had when he confronted Jesus in the wilderness, according to Matthew chapter 4. We need to drop all those superstitious ideas about 
the devil personally tempting us. It doesn't mean I don't believe in the person, the devil. I'm just saying he's not allowed to have the access to us that he once had. He was destroyed. That power was destroyed. So what is Peter talking about here? Because it really sounds like he's prowling about, moving to and fro like he did in the days of Job. The devil's still very powerful. But his power is in his lies. His power, his influence is in deceit. This is what Jesus was telling the Pharisees who were under his control, under the devil's control, in John chapter 8, verse 44. He does not stand in the truth, he says, because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. They were under the power of the devil, under the power of his lies. Lies are very effective at making us give up on God during the waiting period. Lies like, if God loved you, you wouldn't have gotten sick. If God loved you, you wouldn't have lost your job. You wouldn't have gotten a divorce. You wouldn't have had that fallout with your child. If God really loved you, your life would be perfect. Lies. Your sins are too awful for God to forgive you. You're not good enough for heaven. Lies. You're worthless. Nobody likes you. Lies. Churches are for hypocrites. Religion's outdated. Just a bunch of self-righteous people at church. Everybody's going to judge you at church. It's a lie. Christianity is hateful, intolerant. Christians don't like people. Christians are trying to oppress people. It's all a lie. And every lie that I just gave an example of is a very powerful, influential lie in the world that many, many people believe. So... Be watchful. While you wait, these lies are going to start invading your mind, trying to convince you to give up. Remember the truth. Look to God. Read His Word. And don't believe the lies. Here's the next step. Perspective. If you want to make it through, if you want to endure through the waiting, you've got to have a perspective. And Peter gives us Two statements of perspective here. And the first one is this. You're not alone. You're not alone. Nothing tempts you to give up your convictions more than feeling alone. I mentioned Thomas Paine in the introduction of this lesson. A contemporary of his was Benjamin Franklin. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was known as a man who enjoyed the society of others. And it is said that on a voyage from London one time, he passed the time playing cards with fellow passengers. And as they were on that trip, a few weeks in, it was discovered that one of the passengers had been cheating. And he wouldn't own up to it. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, say he was sorry. And so they excommunicated him. This is a long voyage. And what that meant was he couldn't... Uh, he couldn't eat with them, drink with them, 
play cards with them, converse with them. And it wasn't but just a short period of time that the offender quickly paid up for reasons that Franklin explained in his journal. Here's what he, here's what he wrote. Man is a sociable being and is one of the worst punishments to be excluded from society. I acknowledge solitude and agreeable refreshment to a busy mind, but were these thinking people obliged to be always alone, I'm apt to think that they would quickly find their very being insupportable to them. And maybe that's the universal need that Peter is playing on here in verse 9 where he says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I know you're suffering, but you're not alone. You've got many brothers and sisters who are going through the same thing. Elijah went through this in 1 Kings 19. Jezebel was pursuing him, threatening his life. He runs into the wilderness, hides under a broom tree. He asks God that he might die. Verse 4, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. Twice he says this to God in verse 10 and verse 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's only me. I'm the only one left. I'm the last prophet. Have you ever felt that way? Nobody understands me. Nobody goes through what I go through. You need a little perspective. Here's the perspective God gave Elijah. He said in verse 18, There are 7,000 who have not yet bowed their knees to Baal. And so Peter's saying, in essence, look for the 7,000. You're not alone. You may feel alone, but get some perspective. The second perspective is, God has been patient with us. Now we'll go to Peter's second letter here for, for this perspective, but I think it needs to be brought in here as we talk about waiting because he returns to that subject in 2 Peter 3.9 and he says, The Lord is not slow concerning His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this slowness that's causing you to wait, it's all about God's patience and His desire for you not to perish. God has been very patient with you. There's an old Jewish story from folklore about Abraham receiving a, an 80-year-old man into his tent one night. He washes the man's feet, he prepares a meal for him, he feeds him. And they sit down to dinner, and the man just dives into his meal without praying. And Abraham says, don't you pray before you take your meals? And the man said, I don't believe in any God but fire. That's the only God that I respect. And Abraham threw him out of his tent. Later, Abraham spoke to God. He said, I forced him out because he didn't worship you. And God said, I've suffered with him 80 years, although he dishonors me. Could you not endure him for one night? 
Isn't God patient? He's more patient with us than we are with him. Now put it in perspective. You're not alone. God waits on you. Here's the last step in the formula. Faith. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Faith has content, right? Faith is believing something. What is Peter asking us to believe? There are six tenets of faith here that he gives in rapid-fire succession. Number one, he says God is gracious. He calls God by this name in verse 5. The God of all grace, he mentions it again here in verse 10. He's the God of all grace. He gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. He gives us favors we don't deserve. The second thing he asks us to believe is that we've been called to eternal glory. This life is not all there is. There's more beyond. Greater life. We only begin to live when we pass from this life into the next. Then he promises God will restore you. New American Standard word there is perfect. It has to do with completing us. We're incomplete as it is. And at the last day, God will finish the work that He began now. He will restore us. This word restore is the same word used of the sons of Zebedee mending their nets when Jesus approaches them in the Gospels. God will mend your heart. He will put you back together again. Next, God will confirm you. The word suggests that he fixes us securely so that we cannot be moved. Jesus, speaking as the good shepherd in John 10, 28, says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 and 39. He will strengthen you. Do you feel weak? Peter says, hang on. You will be strengthened. And finally, he asks us to believe that God will establish you. He will set you on a firm foundation so that your foot will not slip. He words this as if only the first item in this list is a reality. That's the present tense. God is gracious. The final five are blessings reserved for the future. Blessings we must wait for, which means you must have faith. You have to believe. You may not be confirmed and strengthened and established now, but you will be. You must wait. Be patient. Do you live by faith? No one can wait on a God he doesn't believe in. Who else are you going to turn to? Will science tell you why you're here and where you're going? Science is very important, very profitable. We've benefited a great deal. It tells us how, but it never tells us why. You need more than materialism. To whom are you going to turn? Politics? How successful has that been? Education? Can it give us all the answers? Your friends? Your parents? Your family? To whom will we turn if we don't turn to God? Who will come through for us if we wait for Him? Who has always come through for us? Hasn't it always been God? 
Life is not as it should be. And Peter makes that very clear in this message to us today. He doesn't gloss over the troubles. You read the letter that he writes. It's all about suffering and affliction and what the Christians are going through. But God himself, and he uses the profound the pronoun in the emphatic in Greek in, in verse 10, God himself has promised to restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. The question is, will you wait on him? He has waited on you. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. God is waiting on you. Are you waiting patiently for him? Peter tells you how. And this morning you might be struggling a little bit with that. God has been waiting for you to make a change in your life. To become a Christian. Or to repent. To be restored. To open up to a brother or sister in Christ about your your struggles, and ask for help. He's been waiting patiently. And I know that because you're here this morning. There are people here who need to change their lives. There are people here who can be more faithful. All of us can grow more. You're here today because God's still waiting. Don't make Him wait any longer. If you need to make a change in your life, we ask that you come now as we stand together and as we sing.